A listener's note before we begin, the following tape contains adult themes and acts of violence against children. It won't be suitable for all listeners. South Africa has the unfortunate reputation of being the country with the third highest rate of serial killers in the world, only preceded by the United States and the United Kingdom. Over the past century, 112 active serial killers were convicted in South Africa, which effectively means at any given time in the country's history, there has been one or more active serial killers within the borders of the country. Of all the prolific serial killers who claim the southern tip of Africa, with its magnificent beaches, towering mountain ranges, and abundant fauna and flora, there is one, the man who brought home to citizens. The monsters don't have green scales, fangs, and hide in your nightmares. The scariest monsters might be your neighbor, your fellow church member, or even your own father. During the period 1988 to 1989, the cities of Peter Mutzenberg, Johannesburg, Peritra were in a state of continuous terror, since six young girls between the ages of 9 and 16 seemed to have vanished without a trace. Police launched a frantic search, but due to the lack of information and evidence, the missing girls seemed to have disappeared like the mist before the sun. August 1988, Tracy Lehigh Scott Crosby, age 14, from Rindenburg, disappeared from the Cresta Shopping Center. She was last seen entering a Volkswagen Beetle, but no other information was available. Her brother, who originally would have accompanied her, would struggle with his choice not to join her for many years afterwards, and in a bizarre twist, he was later convicted of beating a farm worker unconscious and then throwing the limp man's body to the lions to feed on. The conviction was later overturned, but Tracy's brother was just one of the unknown victims whose lives were scarred by an evil that would leave more questions than answers in its wave of terror. On 22nd December 1988, 12-year-old Fiona Harvey from Peter Mutzenberg disappeared on her way to the corner shop to buy some milk for her mother. Witnesses would recall a white truck with Van Royen building contractors written on the side of the vehicle. Police would not immediately relate the abduction to the cases in Peritra and the surrounding area, but it would later emerge that the suspect spent time not only in Gawatang, but also the coastal resorts of Kawazulu Natal. Sadly, she was one of the six girls who disappeared and whose bodies were never found. The only clue to what might have happened to Fiona was a witness seeing the pickup truck with the company logo. On 7th June 1989, the young nine-year-old Joanne Horn was abducted on her way to school, never to be seen again. Once again, police had no clues to follow up. Detectives were becoming frustrated with the mounting case files which seemed to be connected, although how they were connected was elusive. Peritra was the capital of the country and known as one of the friendliest cities with many students. It was during the apartheid era that the crimes occurred and suburban middle-class white folks were not prepared for the darkness beyond white picket fences. The dangers seemed not to belong amongst blooming jacaranda trees and manicured gardens. 
During July 1989, 16-year-old Janet Delport from Peter Mutzenberg would be found wandering around in a drug daze after she was reported earlier in the day as missing due to the drugs in her system or perhaps because she could have a psychological block on her memory of the time she was abducted. She could offer police no information about the abduction. Only later, as the story of the six missing girls would unfold, Janet would realize that regardless of what happened, during those missing hours, she was one of the lucky ones to escape. Nine-year-old Rosa Peel would disappear a couple of weeks later. Police by now was well aware of the modus operandi of the perpetrator, and despite the fact that there was not a single piece of evidence to link Rosa's abduction to the others, detectives believe they were looking for the same man. Soon afterwards, Odette Boucher, age 13, and Anne-Marie Wapnar, aged 11, would be abducted together on their way to school. On 29th September 1989, Anne-Marie's mother would receive a letter from Anne-Marie claiming that she and Odette had run away to the coast with some boys. Since the content was completely out of line with her daughter's personality, Anne-Marie's mother took the letter to the detective in charge and both agreed that the letter was written under duress. The abductor or the abductors were becoming brazen. All the kidnappings took place in broad daylight and in public places such as shopping centers. The teams of detectives who dedicated all their time and energy and resource to catch the perpetrator had practically no information, no lead, and it was as if the six girls just vanished without a single trace. Detectives were especially concerned with the escalation of the number of abductions. The time between the kidnappings became less and openly taking two girls in daylight indicated to police that the culprit was very good at what he did, highly intelligent and pure psychopath. At that time, very little was known as far as serial murders, perpetrators, and serial offenders. But police knew from previous international cases that the escalation, in part, was a good sign. It's an unfortunate parameter, but the faster the escalation, the more likely the perpetrator would make more mistakes. Police could not understand how the abductor, who according to the psychological profile, was definitely a white male, could not only get away with his crime, but do it almost effortlessly. Yolanda Wessels was very familiar with the house at 227 Melbury Street. It was the home of her aunt Francina Joanna Herhoff, better known as Joey. On the afternoon of 22nd December 1989, she left her home to visit with her aunt, also never to be seen again. Detectives interviewed Herhoff, but she would later be described as harmless, friendly old lady eager to assist in the disappearance of her niece. Little did they know or even suspect that they were speaking to one of the most notorious international serial killer couples in the world. Friends and family would later describe Herhoff as a gentle soul, always pleasant and soft-spoken, and that the change in her only came after she fell in love with Cornelius Jahardis Van Royen, known as Gert. The 11th of January 1990 was a beautiful summer day in Peritra, capital city of South Africa. 16-year-old Joanne Buens was late for her connecting bus to her high school, which meant another quarter of an hour of waiting. Joanne had hardly been standing at the bus stop at Church Square when a friendly, blonde, middle-aged woman stopped next to her and asked what she was attending. Joanne told her, and when the woman offered to take her to school, Joanne didn't hesitate. Joanne was aware of stranger danger, but this lady could have been the mother of any of her friends. Once in the car, the conversation flowed comfortably. The woman asked if Joanne would mind if they could stop at her house to let her people know she was taking Joanne to school. Joanne did not mind, and soon they pulled into the driveway of a neat home in one of the leafy suburbs of Peritra. 
The woman entered the house but came out minutes later and asked Joanne if she would mind waiting inside. Since no one was at home, Joanne obliged. Once inside, she noted how tidy the house was. Most of the doors in the house were closed, but she saw school uniforms from different schools on the bed and asked the woman who the clothes belonged to. Herhoff told Joanne the uniforms belonged to her children and she was planning on donating the items. Once in the master bedroom, Joanne turned around to find Herhoff had vanished and instead the menacing figure of a man who she later described as having devilish eyes was grabbing her and forcing her to kiss him. Utterly shocked and repulsed, Joanne fought back. The man who would later be identified as Gert Van Rooyen punched her in her face and by the time Joanne had regained focus, she found that she was staring down the barrel of a gun. As Van Rooyen lifted her from the bed with a headlock, Herhoff entered with a handful of pills, stockings, handcuffs, tape, and a glass of water. The magnitude of her situation and the realization that this kind woman was not going to help her hit her at once. Joanne was forced to drink the tablet. She was tied up and gagged, after which Van Rooyen proceeded to sexually assault her. She was then locked up in a closet where she lost consciousness for a while. It is important to note that Joanne was small for her age and that Van Rooyen usually abducted younger victims and did not expect her to be resilient. Joanne immediately started loosening her bindings and managed to open the closet door. The drugs she had been forced to drink had not completely worn off and despite being terrified, she knew she had to escape. Fortunately, Herhoff was in the backyard completely unaware of her victim's escape. Joanne made it to the front door, always alert from any other signs of the man who had molested her and by pure luck found the front door open. Dazed and confused, she made her way to the street, but Herhoff noticed her escaping and ran after her. A motorist finally stopped and took in the disheveled girl who was still wearing handcuffs. Herhoff caught up with the motorist and the girl and tried to persuade them to take the situation to a residence instead of sorting it out in the street. Joanne frantically pleaded with the motorist and would not let go of his arm. Once in the vehicle through a river of tears, she once again begged the Samaritan not to take her back to the house. Fortunately, the kind man promised the frightened girl not to worry and they immediately made their way to the nearest police station. She was still so heavily sedated that she had to be carried into the police station. Once inside, her invaluable statement would finally give the South African task team not one but two names of the monsters who had been terrorizing the suburban streets of South Africa. The escape of Joanne Boans would lead investigators to Gerd Van Rooyen's house that the press later dubbed the House of Horrors. Immediately after getting the statement, the task team headed for the house that Joanne identified, but their suspects, who by now have been identified as Joey Herhoff and Gert Van Rooyen, had clearly made a run for it. Apart from agreeing to maintain surveillance on the residents, a massive manhunt started on 11 January 1990. According to the statement of Amor, Herhoff's daughter, she and her husband had just returned home on 13 January 1990 after visiting family in Clerkstorp. They found the window near the front door had been broken and Amor and her husband proceeded to enter the house. Van Rooyen and Herhoff had appeared from the main bedroom, clearly half asleep through the ramblings. Amor could figure out that her mother and her mother's lover had kidnapped a child for ransom and that the child had escaped. Amor had no idea how dark the truth would eventually be, despite the fact that their only connection to the crime was that Amor was related to one of the suspects. It would cost her husband his job and caused them not only to lose everything they had worked for, but also caused an entire community to blame and resent the couple. She would later write a book about her life and tremendous abuse she had suffered under her mother, Joey.
Little is known about where the suspects were in the five days that followed Joanne's escape. They did hide in Amor's house for a night, as well as her half-sister's house. And records would later reveal that they went to Kawasulu Natal, only to return to Paritra a day later. Why the couple decided on the evening of 15 January 1990 to return to their residence at 227 Melbourne Street, no one will ever know. According to Detective Inspector Don Chandler, who became involved with the case after Fiona Harvey was abducted, would later during a radio interview tell a captive audience what he had experienced firsthand. The moment the couple noticed the presence of police, they fled in Van Ruan's white pickup truck and a short car chase ensued. Detective Chandler would testify that all police staff involved in the case were under strict instructions not to kill either of the occupants. As the white pickup truck crossed the creek that serves as unofficial border between Capitol Park and Peritra West, both the left front and back tires were shot out and the vehicle came to a grinding halt. Detective Chandler witnessed Van Juan pulling her hop's head down to the gear lever and saw that a shot was fired. Van Juan's door was locked and before any of the police officers involved could act, he shot himself. Van Juan and her hop, according to a last will and testament found at their home, decided to make a suicide pact. Detective Chandler would later admit that he played the events that followed over and over in his head as he realized neither of them could ever be held accountable for the devastation they caused. After their deaths, the truth about the missing girls will never be known and their families will be denied closure. At 227 Malbury Street, police started collecting forensic evidence. Odette's perfect pin and Anne-Marie's school bag as well as her address would be found hidden under a carpet. The stationery on which the so-called letters of the missing girls had been written was also found. Still, despite turning the garden and house upside down in their search, no remains of the girls would be found. In May 1990, ABSA Bank donated Van Joanne's property to the police and the forensic team would systematically comb through every inch of the property, but hardly any new evidence surfaced. There's not much information available as far as the history of the duos whose acts would leave broken families in its wake. Cornelius Johardus Van Ruyen was born on 11 April 1938. His first brush with the law was in 1954, during which he stole clothing, a firearm, and a vehicle. Subsequently, he was sent to reform school. He married Aleta Van Ruyen, and together they had six children. The marriage was however rocky, and they eventually divorced. In 1979, Van Ruan abducted two young girls aged 10 and 13 and drove them to Hartsbeat Sport Dam where he forced them to strip and perform sexual acts on him. Once he had fulfilled his sexual desires, he took them back to Peritra. Consequently, the girls reported the crime and Van Ruan was sentenced to only four years in jail time but released early on good behavior. After his release, he successfully integrated himself back into the community and operated a building contractor business in partnership with his brothers with some success. South Africa only implemented the National Register for Sex Offenders in 2006 and therefore it was easy to hide the fact that he was a pedophile. Joey Herhoff entered his life at the beginning of 1989. There is very little information as far as the history of the couple is concerned. To outsiders, Herhoff and Van Ruan were just an ordinary middle-aged couple, and even after suspicions at the police station were raised, the officers that went to investigate would return reporting that he had met a harmless old lady and that absolutely nothing seemed 
untold. After the extent of the depravity was revealed, many felt that Herhop was perhaps under the influence of Vandroen and suffered from Stockholm Syndrome, during which a hostage falls in love with the captor. But in a tell-all book by her daughter, Amor, she physically, emotionally, and psychologically abused her own children from a very young age. Amora would remember lying in her cot and having punches rain down on her. When she was older, her mother would sneak into her room and punch her in the stomach while she was sleeping for no apparent reason. She often attended school battered and bruised, but her injuries were never reported. Amor's biological father also sexually abused her from a very young age, and even after Amor's grandmother spoke to her half, her mother would just pretend as if it did not happen. Amor struggled for years with the trauma and emotional scars left by the abuse, but nothing would prepare her for the shocking news that her mother, who only met Van Ruen at the beginning of 1988, was an accomplice in one of the worst crimes South Africa had ever known. There was enough to link the couple to the disappearance of the six girls, and not enough to give any indication of what might have happened to the victims. To the families, closure would remain elusive. Leads seemed to be single, loose threads that seemed to unravel as soon as they were tugged. The family and friends of the victims would repeatedly have their hopes shattered by false leads and 30 years later, the mystery of the missing girls remains a haunting, unsolved puzzle. Detective Chandler never stopped searching for the girls, and even after retiring in 1996, he continued to follow up thousands of leads and interviewing the witnesses in his private capacity. According to a radio interview in 2020, the human trafficking angle is a recent avenue that investigators are pursuing. Flippy Van Royen, son of Gert Van Royen, was arrested and found guilty of kidnapping and murdering a 15-year-old foreign national. He did receive the death penalty, which his father no doubt would have gotten, but the sentence was overturned when South Africa's constitution was rewritten and the death penalty was abolished. While incarcerated, he frequently made bold public statements about his father's and Herhoff's activities. He told reporters that his father kidnapped more than 40 children. Flippy said that his father would originally kidnap black children, since authorities would, in pre-apartheid era, be much less likely to look for children who were not white. The human traffic angle has always been of concern, especially considering how much time Van Ruyen spent at the harbor. As a matter of fact, he was working for a shipping company. To hide the girls in containers and export them would have been easy in his position. But so far, all local and international leads have rendered no answers. Dock workers, as well as cleaning staff, have however confirmed later to police that Van Ruyen asked them frequently for children. During his many interviews in 1996, Flippy Van Ruyen told reports of high-ranking National Party members who were involved in the clandestine meetings with his father, with regards to obtaining underage girls for sexual pleasure. Flippy has however discredited himself terribly, and in 2001, he was charged with lying about these allegations. No one paid much heed to these statements, until Detective Inspector Mark Minnie and reporter Chris Dine published their book, The Lost Boys of Bird Island, in which many of the same charges were made and Van Ruen's name definitely mentioned as a player in the national clandestine pedophile trafficking ring. The book was however retracted and Mark Minnie committed suicide in 2019, once again leaving more questions than answers. 
There was never a trial, and Gert Van Royen and Joey Herhoff were never charged with any crimes. In light of all the witness statements and evidence, they were undoubtedly the mastermind of either a human trafficking ring, or they were kidnapping and disposing of children for their own statistic reasons. The devastation the missing children caused would ripple through their families and touch every person in the country. Many of the missing six parents would divorce, and a couple hired psychics and private investigators, and in doing so would grow deeper and deeper in debt. It's easy to understand the desire to be able to bury your child in order for the grieving process to begin. After so much time and limited progress, only parents like Boucher's and retired detective Don Chandler still feel that intimate connection with the case that forces them to continue searching. Recently, after demolishing the house at 227 Mahalbury Street, a group of artists erected a wall of remembrance with the names of the six girls who vanished without a trace. A wall might seem cold comfort to a grieving parent, but the wall, which was erected in 2020, is perhaps the only way loved ones could find some form of memorial to their lost children. It might not be a gravestone, but it is a tribute to the six little girls who might be gone, but will never be forgotten.